The second reading is from James 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, let me ask you this morning, is your faith real? And how do you discern if it is real or fake? If you pray for somebody who is sick and they're not healed, does that mean that your faith is fake? If you pray fervently for it to rain and it doesn't, is your faith fake? If not, why not? You see, how you answer this question, how you define what faith is, will ultimately determine whether you can answer yes or no to the question of whether your faith is real. So, if you're a person who claims to have faith, let me ask again, is it real faith? There is perhaps no more important, no more practical, no more self-assessing question than this. I'm not sure if you've noticed uh, throughout our series, but the artwork for uh, this series in the book of James has had the title, How Real Faith Works. If you're uh, visiting for the first time this morning, that is, we've been working through the book of James, and uh, that has been the, the summary line. And throughout the book, uh, that has been James's main concern, as we've seen over the last few months. He has addressed several issues in the churches that he is writing to, and the entire time, he has been calling them to a real faith that displays itself, that, that manifests itself in godly works. And so now as we reach this final section of the letter, our final sermon in in the book of James, it seems entirely appropriate to title this sermon the same way that we have titled the whole series. So, no, that's not the generic slide, that's the slide for this sermon, How Real Faith Works. Let's explore the passage through two points uh, that will follow the main sections. Point number one... Uh, it's taking a little bit to load. Sorry, Jess, if you can just put that up for me. Point that one, real faith prays. And point number two, real faith brings back wanderers. Let's open up our Bibles this morning and open our hearts to God's Word, beginning at point one, real faith prays. Let's see if I can get this to work. Here we go. 
No worries, thanks. Real faith prays. But it doesn't just pray in the sense that we cry out to God when you're stuck. Real faith prays prayers of faith. And once again, what you mean by faith will make all the difference. I hope what I think the Bible, and specifically James, means by that will become clearer as we go. Let's begin at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Which prayers come most readily to you? Which ones are easiest? Prayers of praise or prayers for help? Kids, there's only a few of you this morning. When you pray, do you find it easier to pray prayers of praise or prayers asking God for help? Which comes more naturally to you? You don't have to answer out loud, I won't make you. The opening verse uh, to our passage is such a crucial one because it not only connects to the passages that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks as James addressed the oppressed poor and those who are suffering, but it also puts the verses to come, the rest of this passage, into a fuller context. Do you notice the difference between suffering and being cheerful? The one who is suffering might be there because of their circumstances, but the one who is cheerful may be, may be cheerful despite their circumstances. We were reminded again last week of James's opening words to this letter in chapter 1, verse 2, right at the beginning of the book, where James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So to be suffering and to be cheerful, they are not mutually exclusive. You, you can be suffering and still be cheerful. As a matter of fact, James encourages those who are suffering to find joy in their trials because God is producing steadfastness in them and He is perfecting their faith. And in so doing, James reminds us that God is sovereign and good no matter what we face. And so here, right at the beginning, James goes to opposite ends of the spectrum of human experience. And he reminds us that as followers of Christ, we can and should be constant in our communication with God. Whether in suffering, whether in joy. Now, most of us, I imagine, gravitate more naturally towards different types of prayer. Some only, think to, some only think to pray when they're in need of something. Others like to praise God and thank Him for His goodness and yet feel embarrassed to ask or perhaps you know, they think they don't need God and therefore we don't pray in times of need. Both are part of a healthy prayer life. This is why in our prayers on Sunday mornings, we seek to incorporate, uh, at the very least, these different aspects of prayer. It's also why sometimes we choose to separate out different types of prayer and have a prayer of adoration, a prayer of confession, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of supplication. 
If you struggle with any of those, we, we hope that by modeling these prayers, that you can be encouraged to include these different prayers in your own life. And such prayer reflects a deep trust in our sovereign God and reminds us of this as we face trials of various kinds. But James, here in this first verse, he doesn't just say that we should speak praise. What does he say? We should sing praise. It's one of the reasons why we always sing when we gather together as the church. Paul encourages also the Colossians in Colossians 3.16 to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And Now, that, that might be great for somebody like Scott who sings and loves it. But if you do not uh, naturally burst forth in songs of praise when you are cheerful, let me encourage you to practice this at our Sunday gatherings. I get the sense that men generally find this a bit difficult. Correct me if I'm wrong, gents, but it seems to be the case that most more naturally sing with a half-closed mouth and a sort of a you know, rough mumble. And so if, if, if that's you, whether, whether male or not, uh, let me encourage you, now's the time. Everybody's wearing masks. So you know, you, you, nobody even knows whether you're actually singing or not. Give it a go. Practice. God has given us the gift of music and singing as a way to draw nearer to Him and to grow in our walk with Him. So real faith prays in suffering and praises God in joy. And it also prays for the sick. Let's read from verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I remember reading an article by a pastor uh, where he recounted the story of someone coming up to him while they were preaching through the book of James, and he asked him something like, what are you going to do about that dodgy bit at the end of James? And he was referring to these verses. Well, as you know, uh, we as a church are committed to Scripture and the fact that all of it is God's Word and useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us. And that means that we are committed to even the passages that some might describe as dodgy. But you can understand why someone would say that about these verses, right? Because it sounds like James is giving us a blanket promise to the person who is sick. If you're sick, get the elders over to pray for you with a little bit of oil, and then you'll be fine. The Lord will raise you up. And pretty straightforward, right? Well, not so fast. 
If that interpretation of the text were true, then Christians wouldn't die of sickness, would they? Pretty much every person dies of some kind of sickness. And so you just do this every time and you just keep going. Ah, you might say, but it depends on whether the person had enough faith or not. After all, James says that the prayer of faith is what saves them. And also the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Well, I'm sure you, like me, have had conversations like this. Perhaps you've even wondered how to make sense of this dodgy bit. It is a challenging passage. I'm not going to deny that, but I hope a closer inspection of it will help shed some light for us as to what James is saying. The first thing to note is James's first instruction there to those who are sick. From this verse, we see that James assumes that the church has multiple elders. You've already seen three of ours this morning. Josh prayed, Braden gave a really helpful introduction to give, get us into the background. One of them, you, you've seen all of them who are here, the other one's in another country. This is one of the reasons why our church has this plurality of elders. It seems pretty clear in the New Testament that it was the norm in the early church. It also seems like James is referring to a person here who is quite sick. Given how specific these instructions are, the fact that the elders need to be called over rather than this person just going to the elders, and also the fact that the elders are to pray over the sick person, give us this indication that this is a person who is in a very extremely sick condition. And these verses are here are actually where the Roman Catholic Church seeks to base its practice of what's called extreme unction, also known as the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. You may be familiar with that. Now, there are long answers and reasons as to why we as Christians don't do this and believe, uh, uh, nor believe that we should. I'm not going to go into those right now, but you may uh, welcome to ask about them and we can discuss it later. But just on this, on the oil in particular... Uh, you can understand the oil to be doing uh, one of the few things. It is either sacramental in the way Catholics think of it, that is, the oil itself actually bestows grace onto the person, or it's, symbol, uh, sorry, or it's medicinal and it helps soothe that person's illness, or it's symbolic of de dedication to the Lord, similar to the way it was used in the Old Testament and a couple of other places in the New Testament. I think it's actually this latter sense that James is using that term. It is a symbolic uh, dedication, if you like, of the person to the Lord. One of the reasons I think that is because of the term James uses and the way it's used uh, in the Bible, but also this practice of anointing the sick with oil is extremely uncommon in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the only other place that you will find it used in this way in connection to the sick, is in Mark 6.13, from the passage we read also earlier. Now, we're going to come back to this verse, but it's worth noting that Jesus commands His apostles to do this in Mark 6, and James gives a very similar command to the elders of the church. It's for this reason that uh, interpreters like uh, Calvin and Luther believe that James 5 is an instruction to just the apostles and the apostolic elders who still had the gifts of healing that belonged only to that period of the church. 
Now, others uh, think that such gifts continue today. And so elders should pray for the sick with the exact same expectations that the apostles had, that we read about in Mark 6 and also in Acts. Personally, I don't think either explanation is the most satisfying. And this is mainly for two reasons. You could call these subpoints if you wanted to, if that helps you organize everything. One, because of James's choice of words, and two, because of his connection to confession and the forgiveness of sin. Let's look at James's choice of words. Notice that in verse 15, James says here that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, the Greek term there, sozo, which is translated as save here, had a somewhat broad definition, but its main sense was that of safety or rescue, which is why it translates so easily to being freed from physical illness. But this is actually one of the reasons why I think there is more going on here than just physical healing. In the letter of James, it would be a very strong case to say that whenever he uses this term, sozo, he is referring to eternal salvation from eternal death through faith in Jesus. Up here are the, uh, all the examples of his uh, usage of that word, James 1.21, James 2.14, James 4.12, and 5.20, which we'll get to later on. As Braden explained earlier, in the ancient world, there wasn't such a significant separation between the physical and the spiritual. A theologian, Dan McCartney, puts it this way, The context here in James at least partly has healing in view, but the connection with forgiveness of sins demonstrates that James has both in mind, or perhaps does not sharply distinguish between them. And eschatological, that is end times, salvation certainly is evident elsewhere in James. Again, as I mentioned, I think those examples are there. Again, the distinction that we generally draw may be more the product of our dualistic mindset. So, on top of this word choice, James using the word for save, which throughout his letter he has consistently referred to uh, the salvation of our souls, James also uses the verb for raise up, which is the same one that's used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus and to other people's resurrection from the dead. Oh, sorry, wrong one. Matthew 28, verse 6 is a, a good example of that. So, putting all of this together, I think at the very least, James is referring to more than just physical healing. A physical healing is certainly in view, but James is clearly using language that is tapping into this non-dualistic worldview. Now, you want to be careful when you make these kinds of cases based on words. Uh, context should always primarily drive our understanding of them, which is why I said that physical healing is still in view and might even be the main thing that James is getting at. But I think that everything that I've just mentioned creates a compelling case to say that James is using this example of physical sickness to point to the far deeper and far greater hope that the Christian has in Jesus of a fully saved and healed, resurrected body that will be given to His people at the coming uh, of, at His second coming. 
And I think this not just because of James's use of the words, but also Jesus's use of the words and the whole point of his ministry. See, several times when Jesus heals people in the Gospels, he uses this term, sozo, to describe the restoration from sickness that they have received from him. Have a look at Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 and 34. Jesus healing the woman with the bleeding issue. Look at what she and he say. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I will be saved. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Notice how Jesus phrases his response to the woman. He says, your faith has saved you. And then he says, be healed of your disease. And that word well there is the same as the word for save in James 5. And then Jesus... Oh, sorry. And look at the uh, fuller context of Mark 6.13, which again, we looked at before. Here's how Jesus sends out the apostles. He says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You see, the apostles weren't getting sent to just anoint people with oil and then heal the sick. They weren't going around to just, just you know, to be a, a, a proto-hospital, you know, to, to be doctors before there were doctors. No, the purpose of their sending was to proclaim the gospel to people, was to proclaim that people should repent. And so Jesus, by way of dealing with physical sickness, pointed to the deeper sickness of sin. So when we ask the question, is James talking about physical healing or spiritual healing? Or is James talking about getting well in this life or being resurrected on the last day? Or was the woman with the issue of blood healed of her physical sickness or her sin sickness? The answer is yes. But you might ask, Jesus did both. Doesn't that mean we should do both? To answer that, I point you to a bigger theological truth that is found in the Bible, which we see hints of in these verses. Let me ask you in this passage, whose name is the one, uh, is the anointing with oil done in? Whose name? Sorry, I can't hear you through the mask. Jesus, well, I suppose so, but more <laughs> the, in the actual passage itself, the name of the Lord. And who is the one that does the raising? The Lord does. In many ways, answering why so many faithful Christians have not been physically healed on their deathbeds when elders have come around and anointed oil on them, is kind of the same as asking why Jesus doesn't give us everything we ask for in His name when He tells us to do so in John 14, 14. If you misunderstand these verses because you haven't considered their context in the book that they are written in and in the Bible, then you will only end up being disappointed that God didn't give you what you asked for. 
And James himself gives us context to these verses and understanding of God's sovereignty in our prayers, hasn't he? We've seen that James has talked about how God does not give us things that we ask for because we ask wrongly and because we ask with wrong passions. We ask for the wrong things. We ask for things that will destroy us, things that will take us further away from God. And God graciously denies us those. We've seen how James reminds us that everything in life only happens in accordance with the Lord's will. And such grand truths about God and His sovereignty are the pool which these verses swim in. James emphasizes here once again that yes, prayer must be offered up with faith. But it is faith in the Lord. The Lord is the one who is able to heal the sick and to raise the dead to life. The Lord is the one who answers prayer. And even though I think the prayer of faith is referring to the elder's prayer, that doesn't exclude the sick sick person or anyone else in the church, as we'll see in verse 16. So if you're wondering if you have real faith... Don't ask yourself, how many people have been healed from my prayers? Instead, ask, is my faith fickle and mustard seed-sized as it is in the one who will never fail me? Is my faith in the one who is Lord over all? You see, one of our problems is that we take verses like these and insert our own desires and our own hopes into them and then try to claim them so that we can get what we want. Brothers and sisters, real faith is surrendering our selfish passions to Him and trusting that the outcome of our prayer, whether it is in physical healing in this life or whether that is in resurrection on the day of judgment, will be given according to the Lord's sovereignty and goodness. Does your faith rest on Him? Do you surrender your life into His hands, whether He chooses to extend your time here on earth or bring you into eternity? He is the one who will heal. He is the one who will save. He is the one who will raise up. And He is the one who will forgive. Which is the second reason why I think James is talking about more than just physical healing. You see, if you think that these verses speak purely about healing and nothing else, then you run into some problems with the second half of verse 15. Why would James say that if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven? What's the relationship? I think James is making a couple of points here. Firstly, I think he is talking about the fact that the Bible teaches that some sickness is a result of sin. Some Jews believe that this was the case with all sickness. And so that's why they asked Jesus about the man who was born blind in John 9. They said, was it him or his parents who sinned that he ended up like this? 
And Jesus made it clear that not all sickness is a result of sin. This is why James says, if, if he has committed sin. And James can say with confidence that the sick person will be forgiven because in Christ, those who turn to him in repentance and faith receive forgiveness of sins. And so this brother or sister who is sick and unable to get out of bed and is calling the elders over to pray for them is evidently a member of the church who has faith and is displaying that faith by calling them. And James pivots to this because he recognizes that our sin might be the underlying cause of our sickness. But more importantly, our sin is the more fundamental issue that we must have corrected, even more than our physical illness. That is of what is greatest importance. And that was the point of Jesus' ministry. You see this clearly in Mark chapter 2, where the paralytic is brought before Jesus. You see, everybody knows what this paralyzed man and his four friends want. They've just dug a hole through the roof because there's so many people crowded around Jesus to try and get their friend before him. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees what they are after and highlights their far deeper need. James is doing as Jesus did, pointing out that bigger problem. Do you recognize the bigger problem? Our bifurcated, our physical and spiritual world, worldview, it doesn't consider these questions the same way, which I think is why we so easily get confused about physical healing. We find it difficult to recognize that Jesus' physical healings were all about pointing out our deepest sin sickness and giving us a greater hope than just temporary relief that might buy us a few more years. Do you recognize that? Is that how you view Jesus' life and ministry? Do you see that that is what He is doing in your life? Having established this, James moves on to an instruction for the whole congregation in verse 16. And that therefore there is important. In light of what James has just said about calling the elders over to pray for this sick person, we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we might be healed. This verse is the only place where we are explicitly commanded to confess our sin to one another. But we see glimpses of it in other parts of Scripture. If you're taking notes, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is a good example, as are Luke 17, 3 and Acts 19, 8. Now, James is using the specific example of a very sick brother or sister to springboard into this point. But what he taps into is a general truth and a practice of brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps it's a sickness that might give you cause to pause and reflect whether it is a sin in your life that has caused it. 
And that would be a good thing to mention to a brother or sister in Christ so that you can confess that sin and ask them to pray for you. An example of this might be that you have back problems because you're lazy and you spend most of the hours of your day slouching on the couch playing the Xbox. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you might be burnt out or extremely stressed because work is your idol and your identity. Now, sin may not necessarily be the direct or only cause of your sickness, even in those examples. But don't miss the opportunity to recognize where there might be sin in your life that is causing or contributing to sickness that you can confess to God and to a brother or sister in Christ. As I've mentioned before, whether there might be other sickness that isn't so clearly connected to sin in an obvious way, like what I've just mentioned, and you can think of plenty more examples that's not something that the Bible wants us to be anxious about, that God uh, is, is saying, well, see if you can find out why you're sick, because there's a sin there that I want you to pay attention to. No, because the emphasis is not primarily on the physical sickness, but it is on the sin in our hearts. I think this is why James can so confidently say that our sins will be forgiven when we come to Him and to one another in humility and in confession. So what does this all look like? In real life, day-to-day practice. Well, firstly, uh, I'm totally fine with elders coming around to pray for the person who is extremely sick and anoint them with oil. Provided we can communicate understanding of what we're doing there. The oil isn't somehow magical or special. Nor do we expect elders to have miraculous signs following them the way that they did the apostles. But in doing so, if we offer up a prayer of faith that trusts in the Lord and encourages a brother or sister to look to Christ and remember their ultimate hope in being raised with an eternal body, even as they might hope to be raised in this physical body, that seems to me to be a reasonable way to be obedient to this text. Mind you... Uh, I haven't discussed this with any of the other elders, so, so we'll probably have to talk about that first. Secondly, when it comes to the confessing of sin with one another, I think prudence is required, especially because James is thinking more specifically here about sins related to sickness. So I don't think James here is commanding that we uh, confess every possible sin to every member in the church. James is tapping into an expected culture in the church where brothers and sisters love God so much that we pursue His sanctification in our lives by His grace and love one another so much that we spur each other on in this good work. Where that characterizes us and our hearts, where that is our desire, the more we love one another and demonstrate that the church is a safe place to bring our sins before God and before each other, the more we work towards this common love for God and hatred of sin, the more this practice will be something that naturally happens and something that we actively pursue. It's worth asking the question at this point, How often do you confess 
your sin to others. Is that something that you are happy, are okay to do? If you're married, I hope you do this with your spouse. If you don't, start today. Practice confessing your sin and extending forgiveness and praying for one another. Kids, if you love Jesus, you can do this by confessing your sin to your parents. But I hope that we do this with others in our church. Singles, single people, you have much to offer the married couples and the families in our church. They could be unaware of the struggles that you go through, the temptations that you face, the sins that you battle. And of course, it goes the other way. And it happens across all sorts of other demographic lines. You see, other than our own individual sanctification, one of the reasons I think God gives us this instruction is because it helps us see things through the eyes of our brothers and sisters in Christ and therefore helps us to love one another better. In the case of when someone has sinned against us, It's amazing how often God helps us deal with our anger or our offense with a brother or sister by graciously showing us what life is like in their shoes. How may you grow in this? And now James, as he did last week, he pivots to an example from the Old Testament that we can draw inspiration from. But not before he makes a statement that many after him would take out of context. What does it mean that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working? Some have said that if you are righteous, then your prayer is powerful and you can do basically what Elijah did. You can pray for rain to stop, it'll stop. You can pray for it to rain and it'll rain. The problem with such a reading is that James says that Elijah had a nature like ours. And that nature, as we saw in Elijah's life when we preached through Kings a few months ago, was not perfect. Elijah was flawed just like the rest of us. He was born in sin. So to take James' description of the righteous person to mean the person who has done no wrong, well, then nobody's prayers would be powerful and they're working. And it also causes us to start thinking that the degree or the, of power to our prayer is proportionate to the degree of our righteousness. The more righteous I am, the more powerful my prayer will be. No, James is using the term righteous the same way he does in verse 6 of this chapter. It is synonymous with the faithful, with those who have put their trust in the Lord and depend on Him for salvation and grace. The ones who can now be called righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to them. 
Elijah fits into that camp, even though he was before Christ and held on to the shadow of promises that were to be fulfilled in Christ. And once again, it's worth reminding ourselves here of who it is that brings the rain. Tell me something. Do you think that Elijah would have been able to pray for rain and make it rain if it was not something that God had told him to do? After all, when Elijah has his little freak out, when Jezebel threatens his life, he runs away and he sits down under a boom tree, a broom tree, a boom tree, broom tree, and he asks God to die. If he had faith to make it rain whenever he liked, wouldn't it make more sense for him to just say, well, God, can you make it rain so I can have something to drink? And also, while you're at it, please provide me with some food. No, he doesn't, but God sends an angel to him to provide him with both food and drink. Brothers and sisters, you need not look at the great works and prophets of old and think to yourself that you must somehow replicate what they did. No, that is not the measure of faith. That is not necessarily what real faith looks like. Now, if somehow, for whatever reason, that would be beyond my knowledge, God really does tell you that He wants you to announce to Scott Morrison that there is going to be a drought in Australia for the next three years because of the way the nation has gone away from God or something like that, and then you pray, and then that happens, great! I will praise God with you and rejoice at your great faith. But as far as I can tell from Scripture, that is not what God is calling us to have faith to do. And even Elijah's prayer wasn't about manipulating weather so that people could say, hey, wow, such great power the Lord has. No, the point was to call Israel back to God. The whole purpose of that miracle was so that Elijah could pray on behalf of the people and pray for their salvation. He does that just as the elders are called to pray in James 5. As I've already said, and particularly with reference to this prayer of faith over the sick person, we are people of the gospel. We are people of this message that our greatest need and our greatest problem before God is not any physical ailment that we might be facing, but the ailment of our sin sickness. You and I might be lowering ourselves or our friends through the roof to Jesus, hoping that He is going to make us walk again. But Jesus confronts these passions and these desires that we have, which are so short-sighted and instead highlights our even greater need, which we often cannot see, the need for our sins to be forgiven. You might be here this morning and you have never heard that before. Perhaps you think that health and wellness matter most in life, that this life, that this world, these days that you have are of greatest importance. Perhaps you've never even considered that you are born in sin and cannot do anything to earn right standing before God. Friends, I'm here to tell you that that is a truth that you cannot escape. And if it weren't for the mercy of God, you and I would be lost and condemned to hell forever. 
But the good news of the gospel is that God does not leave us there. You see, for every person who turns to Him and confesses their sin before Him and puts their faith in Jesus for their salvation, the one who has brought healing for our sins through His perfect life and His atoning sacrifice on the cross, God grants that person salvation and forgiveness of sin. And as a a result, we live in pursuit of Him, seeking His desires for us and by His grace, living to please Him above all else. And we live with Him as our mediator, Praying for us. If you have not responded to Jesus yet by turning from your sin and trusting in Him, let me invite you to consider doing that today. Because our lives are a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. Do not wait until it will be too late. Kids, you are also never too young to do that. Let me encourage you to do so also. And brothers and sisters, if what you believe about what our deepest sickness is affects the way you pray, then surely it will affect how you treat a brother or sister who is wandering from the faith. If you think their eternal destiny matters more than their physical comfort, then you will surely be willing to push through the challenge and the awkwardness of this final instruction. That brings us to our second and final point. Real faith brings back wanderers. Letters around this time usually finished with greetings to other people, as we see in most of Paul's letters. But it's perhaps somewhat fitting that James, the New Testament author who has the highest number of imperatives per word, finishes with another instruction. It's not, it's not, he's not unique in this. John does the same in 1 John. Let's read from verse 19. My brothers, again, that refers to all brothers and sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the heading of my points can make you think that you are only on one side of this relationship. It would be easy to assume that you will only ever be the person who is restoring a wanderer. And to make that assumption would be a grave mistake. We are all, as the great hymn reminds us, prone to wonder. Interestingly, last week, Robin and I had dinner with some friends. And as part of that conversation, I mentioned something about how pastors can be prone to thinking that they are not in danger of wandering. And so I think I said something about how I I can't just assume that I'm not going to have an affair, for example. And I use that example because, sadly, it's the most common one that hits the headlines with pastors. Now, to be clear, I have absolutely zero intentions of having an affair. 
I plan to be happily married to my wife for as long as the Lord gives either of us. The reason I was making the point was because if I at any point think that I am untouchable, that I am bulletproof, that my own sin will not drag me into something that I do not want to do, that with my whole being I would despise myself for doing, that I'm somehow able to resist the devil with my own force of will, then I'm putting myself in grave danger. No, the reason I shared that with them was because I am prone to wonder like any other sheep in God's fold. I need to commit myself to fighting sin and seeking God's help by His Holy Spirit every day of my life. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm immune to wandering. Brothers and sisters, it is by grace that we are saved. And it is by grace that we continue in that salvation. Let me ask you this morning, are you wondering or perhaps are you wondering about wondering are you walking on the narrow path and looking to the left and right and thinking that perhaps the lush green trees and the crystal clear water that you can see in the lands of sin are just so much better to be walking in than this narrow path that God has given me. Brothers and sisters, that is a desert. It is a barren wasteland. What you are seeing there is a mirage. Satan lures you into it so that you can then die in it. Resist temptation. Resist sin. When your mind wanders, look to Jesus and remind yourself of how he has been good to you and how what he promises is far more satisfying than anything else. Keep your mind from wandering in order to keep your feet from wandering. Keep your mind from wandering so that your feet do not wander. And just to be clear, wandering in the Bible is not just exploration. It is often used to refer to those who have gone astray. It's the image that Jesus uses in Matthew 18, 12, when talking about the, the sheep that has gone and how he leaves the 99 in search of it. And in case you think that wandering from the truth means that, uh, you know, they are just now not believing the right thing. It's important to recognize that the Bible sees the truth not just as an idea that you understand and then agree with, but it is something you obey. Galatians 5.7 is a good example of this. It's not possible to say, yeah, I believe the truth and then live contrary to it. That would be wondering. So the person that James is referring to here is not just someone who has questions or who is struggling or grappling or wrestling with their faith. It is someone who has walked away from their faith. So what does real faith look like? Well, firstly, it looks like not wandering. But secondly, it looks like lovingly and gently 
bringing back a brother or sister who has wandered away from the fold. We do as Jesus does and go in search of the one who is lost. Now, if you're uh, the kind of person who is tempted to think that the way we do this uh, is by pulling up in a white van when they're coming outside of Woolies and grabbing them, yanking them in, chucking a bag over their head and then saying, we're not letting you go until you repent. Well, then it would be a good idea to look at how other parts of the Bible describe how we do this. Galatians 6.1 is a prime example. You restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I love as well that he basically summarizes this verse. Keep watch on yourself too. And this kind of process, this, this seeking and going after the, the brother or sister who has wandered happens out of love and out of care for them. And while this certainly happens on an individual level, this is something we ought to do with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture also shows how this works out on a communal level, at the level of the local church. Matthew 18, 15 to 20, which I mentioned earlier, is one of the key texts that show this. If you read through it, you'll see that it begins with one brother or sister seeking to talk to another about their sin. And that if they refuse to listen, you increase that and bring another person along with them. And then if they still refuse to listen, then you eventually take it to the church. And as tricky and as challenging as this can be, as awkward as it is to have these kinds of conversations... As hard as it is, Scripture is consistent in talking about why this is so important for Christians to do. And James is no different. Look at the reason he instructs us to do this. The one who does that will bring back a sinner from their wandering and will save their soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. I mentioned before James's use of the word save. I think it's certainly clear here that he's referring to eternal salvation. His use of the word death there is, I think, again, clearly referring to that in the same way that he uses it in chapter 1, verse 15. You see, this action of bringing back a wandering brother or sister saves them from eternal death. Because that is where the unrepentant person who wanders away from Christ ends up. That is their final destination. And that language of covering a multitude of sins is more of James once again showing how steeped in the Old Testament he is. As he borrows language from Proverbs 10.12 and Psalm 32.1. James's point is that the person who brings them back is showing great love in, in doing so. And, the, and that person is bringing them to receive God's forgiveness for their sin through their repentance. Are you ready and willing to do that with your own brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them enough that that love outweighs the difficulty, the awkwardness? Is your concern for their soul 
such that you are willing to gently seek to restore them back as far as you are able. Many have pointed out that these last two verses act as something of a summary of the entire book of James. James has been, as we've seen throughout this letter, calling the Christians of the dispersion to real faith in God that is accompanied by works. The wanderer is the one who claims to have faith, but then lives a life that is totally inconsistent with that profession. And James has been doing exactly that kind of calling all throughout the letter. And so it comes time for us to contemplate again. Is your faith real? Is it faith that trusts the Lord's sovereignty, praising Him with joy, and, pray, and bringing all of your pain and suffering to Him in prayer? Is it a faith that is on guard against wandering from the truth and willing to gently restore brothers and sisters who are wandering? And is it a faith that recognizes our greatest need for forgiveness of sin, which we receive through repentance and faith in Christ, who promises to save our bodies and souls in the final resurrection. I pray that we would all have such faith. In fact, let me pray for that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are lost and dead in sin without you. Please, Father, grant us real faith that works. Real faith that doesn't look to ourselves, but rests in you. Real faith that rejoices and trusts in you through all of life's circumstances. Real faith that brings all our petitions to you, full of faith in your saving work. Father, may our prayers reflect this. May our lives reflect this. In Jesus' name, amen.